0: Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to our table. But before we do, could you do us a favor and hit the subscribe button? And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip.
1: Rob, our listeners are going to be so disappointed as I look at the table. What we brag on the fact that we love coffee and tacos, and we have Dr. Pepper sitting on the table today.
0: <laughs> Dr. Pepper Zero, I might add. Well,
1: yeah, we're being conscious of our health. Yeah, yeah. and there will be coffee later, no doubt.
0: <laughs> have you been to lunch with us? Yes. Like, well, we're not conscious of our health, like we well, should be.
1: We eat the, the cafeteria here on campus. It's hard to be conscious of your health, hey, or the tacos really keep bringing the chips.
0: A feed trough's a feed trough. Well, uh, we have
1: a we're way off base already but i'm excited about today's conversation we have an incredible guest i will call him doctor and then doctor no more dr warren bird is on the show with us He is a research is cutting edge churches and works with leaders to multiply their evangelistic and discipleship impact which we love discipleship conversations um, he's authored over 30 books and is a leading researcher and voice in church planting and multi sites, which is your sweet spot. Look, I love it. Which is, you know, is really I do. just a
0: gift to you. It's, it's really, it really is. I, I,
1: Dr. Bird, I, Warren, I said I got to get you on just so Rob can talk to you. This so is like
0: this is like a birthday present for me. So it's a good day.
2: Awesome. It's an honor to be here, and and you picked topics that uh, wake me up in the morning, looking forward to.
0: Good. 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 So, uh, listen, I've been following your research for a long time, um, you know, just in the multi-site world, church planning world. And so, uh, you, you are a well-known scholar, well-known researcher, well-known speaker, writer, author about all of these subjects and topics, um, before we get too far down into the, uh, conversation, like, can you just give us a down and dirty, like the state of the church kind of address, like, where's your heartbeat right now? What are you seeing? What are you passionate about?
2: There has never been a time of greater opportunity than right now. So often, whenever there are Jesus movements or anything else, they come out of times of social turmoil. We just had a global pandemic. There ought to be receptivity all over. Now, Google is a lot of places people go or government programs or anything else. But Jesus has the not only the best answers, but the eternal answers the community of churches give you the group to travel with on the journey. Um, We just should be bursting at the seams with excitement about what God is doing in our lives, how he's working and how we can invite our unchurched uh, neighbors and friends into that journey. So Mm -hmm. I I think the best days are yet ahead Mm -hmm. and I'm, Thankful for podcasts like this one that speak to the emerging generations uh, to say the future is yours and you're going to do great at it.
1: We appreciate that. And uh, so I was on your your website and a a guy I really enjoy reading as well, Lynn Sweet said, no one knows more about megachurches than Warren Bird. So I got to ask, what led you to this sort of passion point of the megachurch?
2: I really, I, I feel like the world needs to be reached gospel, and in my early years it seemed to me two groups were doing it best the smallest newest like church plants were the most entrepreneurial mm. in saying you know how do we get rid of of unnecessary structures and and restrictions and and try new ways of Of spreading the unchanging gospel of Jesus and churches that found some kind of pattern that worked and just kept growing. Mm. And that's what became a megachurch. And megachurch is just technically an arbitrary name of 2,000 noses on a weekend or more, simply to describe that the the complexity and, and the different kind of um staffing and structures that are needed to manage that size of a crowd mm. yeah
1: so what particularly though i mean they were the the church plant which which we love church plant conversations and the mega yeah. churches rob's been a part of i think the largest church i've been in may have been 800 so it doesn't really qualify but there was a lot going on what about those two particular categories really sort of said to you hey chase this and find out everything you can about it
2: that's a great question and part of it is following the doors that the lord seemed to open and or that my passions go into and and one of them is okay let me just give you a a couple of stats across america um there are like 1700 Mega churches out mm. of 300 plus thousand churches so that's half of one percent of churches out there are really big and yet last weekend among those who went to a protestant church one out of 10 people went to a megachurch so here's a group that in any kind of survey or study they don't fit because they're such a you know they're half of one percent and yet they they've been given, for better or worse, an unduly influential position. Mm. Yeah. So is there are there things that can be learned from what um, God is doing in these large churches? And and what needs do they have and what questions are they asking that other sized churches aren't asking that I could help them figure out? Yeah.
0: Yeah
1: that's
0: good. So so obviously coming from a mega church context which you know uh in, in my case will saddle back and you know Pastor Rick just stepped down he just transitioned uh, at the time of this recording last weekend but but we're beginning to see that first iteration or that first generation of megachurch pastors really begin to climb the ladder in terms of age or in terms of uh, season of servant servantship right so um, so Rick is going to be one, Andy Stanley is going to be one, Craig Druchel in another 15, 20 years is probably going to be one. So, so with these, these first iteration of leadership transitions in the mega church reality, because we do place an undue amount of focus and attention on them, like how is this beginning to reverberate in terms of the, the relevancy or the impact of a mega church, uh, in the context and i'm trying to frame this all into one question that there seems to be a growing disillusionment with personality driven or celebrity style churches so is is that a is that a correct assessment or not
2: that's a great question too and i think that's more than one question so let me probably divide it up <laughs> okay. first the idea of succession and now we're speaking to a younger audience and i just want to underscore succession is not what happens when you retire? Well, that's, yes, one piece of it, but anyone who leads anything, I, well, I, I often go in a room and say, I don't know any of you, but I know something about every single one of you. Whatever you're leading right now, somebody is going to follow you. If you're the head right. usher, if you're the head right. uh, hospitality person, if you're the head pastor, if you're the head finance person in your church, whatever you're doing, unless Jesus comes back, one of the most important things you can do is have a good handoff. And mm. sadly, it isn't until people actually retire that they, that oftentimes they look that squarely in the face and say, yeah, I really should have done better work with passing the baton. Right. Uh, but that's a skill that needs to be learned early. In fact, um, one of the books that I did um, was with William Vanderblumen. We called it Next about Pastoral Succession. We did an expanded and updated version. And for that, we built in all the questions people had asked us. And the questions, one big set of questions came from pastors in their 30s and 40s who saw this transition down the road and that it didn't always go well and, and wanted to know, what do I need to do right now? Even if if my retirement quote is, is not for right. 20, 30, 40 years down the road, what do I need to do right now mm-hmm. to build the kind of culture where passing the leadership baton at every level is a normal and healthy thing and that that's just part of what we do we're always training someone else and empowering them and giving them responsibility and seeing them rise to the challenge so on this first part of your question actually korean churches were the first kind of leaders in the megachurch movement Mm -hmm. and when they're and often it was founding pastors who kind of grew up with the church. And when their handoffs happened, too many of them did not go well. And that triggered me to say, "Hmm, same kinds of things might be happening in the United States, or at least in the coming years. And so I began to research succession, which then led to the book and different research projects on succession. Uh, but But all that to say, yes, succession is important. Uh, And it can be done well. It's it's the ones that make the headlines are, you know, disaster falls apart. Uh, But there are an awful lot of successions that just don't make a headline. Five years later, you know, church hasn't missed a beat. Um, Succession was (laughs) seamless. (laughs) Those happen. And we wanted to report on those. You know, what can you learn from both the good and the bad? Right. And uh, and that's for everyone. So um, Rick Warren to uh, Pastor Wood's. Uh, is is yet another uh passing from a founding pastor Rick started in his 20s, as did so many. We could walk around the country and uh and talk about all the pastors that started a ministry in their 20s and look what God did through it. Now, to your second part of your question, you ask about well, what does that say about megachurch as culture has changed, has become more skeptical. Uh, more distrustful of of large institutions. Well, in part, you see behind me those, (laughs) uh, at least you do, I work for the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. And we're all about integrity in leadership and doing things above board um, such that the skeptical world the black eye doesn't go to Jesus. Yeah. It's the, the only offense is not because you know somebody pocketed money or their accusations of this or or this moral failure, but the only stumbling block becomes the cross of Christ. And that everything else is is out of the way and handled well, um, so that um trust yeah. can be enhanced in the institution if i can use that word uh of the church because again the news media loves to highlight the scandals the hypocrisy the inconsistency and broken humans we do that yeah Uh, but there's an awful lot of good happening and and people who who lead well and finish well and ecfa wants to help with that and i've been delighted to help bring that more into megachurch leadership.
0: Nice. Okay. I,
1: I don't remember where I heard this, uh, Warren, and maybe Rob, you heard this as well, but somebody was making the prediction the next 10 years, there's going to be a lot of real estate available in the megachurch movement because those churches won't be able to sustain the size. I, I don't know that's true or not, but I, I'd like your take. You're the expert in the room. The megachurch movement, will it sustain? Will it pull back? Will we see smaller iterations of it? Um, will it have to change and adapt? What's Where are we at with that movement in, in the megachurches in America moving forward?
2: Mm-hmm. Great question. In early March, 2020, I concluded what was through ECFA, what was the largest study ever of megachurches? And this was before the pandemic that kicked in later in the month. And one of the many lessons learned just confirm something from previous years any church gets bigger by getting smaller yeah. we ask among other things um uh, how central are small groups whatever you call them to your strategy of christian nurture and discipleship the heart of your of what you're doing as a church of those who have made it in the door and 90%, you almost never get 90% on any survey, strongly agreed that small groups were central. If you want to read about that, go to ecfa.org slash surveys and look for the one about uh, America's largest churches. Um, but you get bigger by getting smaller. Mm-hmm. And that, Likewise has happened with the multi-site areas of growth where, okay, we either don't want or can't have uh, an ever increasing facility. So let's start multiple campuses or multiple churches, but also in the idea of mergers. And I actually did another book with mergers, Jim Tomerlin and I called Better Together, Mm -hmm. where I looked at, did a lot of research and the losing model of of mergers, is where two churches decide, well, well, we're both struggling and we're both equal and we're going to take the best of each other and just get better, double. And what actually happens is that's more like an ICU unit where two patients just join hands and decide to die together or inevitably do die together because the culture, whatever was and I'm going to use a strong word, whatever was toxic enough to have caused the decline in the church that got them to the point of saying, this is not sustainable, unless you deal with that. And, and usually that has to do with lack of outward focus, uh, lack of evangelistic uh, uh, passion and and other things that have to do with changing the culture of the church. Um, it doesn't happen. The winning formula and I'm coming back to answer your question, the winning formula is a a lead church, a church with momentum, joining hands with a joining church or a follow church. And it's kind of like a dance where one person has to lead and you designate the leader. And it's not necessarily the larger church, but often is. And so as a result, bringing this back to mega churches, four out of 10 multi-site campuses today come by way of merger mm-hmm. and and that's where smaller churches have said, hey we started off great we reached a generation we can't figure out how to do it again, but sh- we've sure got good real estate and good location and a handful of people who love Jesus deeply you know can you help us restart and relaunch and reach a new generation for our church and that goes to to multi-site. So that's often a big piece of fueling a mega church's growth. Now, to the heart of your question about large sanctuaries, um I used to I kept a list of churches that, you know, like, okay, 10,000 cedars. And by the way, there are only three in the United States or, or 5,000 to 10,000 cedars. And uh, about 10 years ago, the last of those were built Uh, much more. You have like in Andy Stanley's example, they had built a 3,200 seater, about almost identically the size of, of Saddleback's auditorium and, and God blessed them with growth. And the elders came to Andy and said, you know, oh, OK, let's let's build something bigger. And he said, no, let's try something back to back. Let's have two thirty two hundred seaters uh, or right around there. Yeah. And let's mm-hmm. use video. And actually, high definition had just come out at that time. And they, they high definition, the whole stage. And and there were people who went into it who who were positive that Andy was in that room, but he was really in the room backing up to it. Yeah the identical sanctuary because technology was so well done. So so just as you know Jesus used the technology of his day and and everybody else since then has used the technology of their day mega churches will continue to use the technology of their day maybe they won't build bigger and bigger facilities and yes you will have some that that peak mm-hmm. and then go down and wait for a, a new generation like some of these Lee University graduates perhaps. <laughs> Uh, to take the mantle and uh, and run with it, yeah. but um, but large churches by and large are rebounding well from the pandemic. They were the last to reopen uh, their facilities, and and will uh, continue to grow, and will need to come continue to overcome the high visibility spotlight that comes anytime the occasional pastor uh, falls or does something that's negative and worthy of the news. Yeah.
0: So I I want to dig into this uh, and kind of sort of the original uh, sort of statement you made. I a hundred percent agree done enough reading and research as well to understand that yes, to get bigger, you, you must get smaller. Like, we call it temple court house house model. There's all kinds of different, mm-hmm. you know, variations of the conversation that that are true, right? So and that
2: temple court model Acts twenty twenty ironically, right? You know, which talks about uh, meeting in the temple and then meeting in the homes.
0: Yep, right. So so that model we embrace pretty readily, but sort of at least from my perspective, maybe could also offer some clarity here is sort of a spin off of that reality, especially from the mega church perspective is the unknown micro site or the home church variation of that small group that is a little bit, uh, perhaps even completely unregulated or unknown. So I was in um, Texas last week with, with a group called empower 21. A guy was there from Craig Rochelle's staff. And, and the question was asked, well, how big is life church? And the response is we don't know anymore. Right. And I think the same thing is true for a lot of mega churches who are experiencing this house to house temple courts kind of model, because, the microsites or the home churches um, are, are expanding. So in your research, have you come across any demographics, any statistics that are either validating or invalidating sort of that undercurrent of growth that's happening almost spontaneously?
2: I am delighted. And I think most large church pastors are delighted with all of the experimentation that has been triggered by the pandemic in terms of well, we, in a way, almost every church in America became a multi-site church, right. uh, mm-hmm. albeit briefly during the yeah. pandemic. In that right. it was seen, you know, first in homes. At least those states I'm in, New York, that that had complete lockdown and we couldn't uh, gather. And and so, you know, we started there, and then then grew some into watch parties. You know, where we had neighbors, friends, some on church, some not, uh, uh, to to be part of it, and. And here coming out of it, I, again, it's like, well, you know, this seemed to work. Um, why can't we keep doing this? And, you know, and you almost don't have to ask permission because so many churches are online already. And it's like, well, what would keep us in any kind of location, whether it's a, a hospital a ward? Uh, a, a place uh, I, I heard of a multi-site campus in, in prison in uh, yeah. where, uh, recovery from addiction people are are hold up for a month you know in a in a certain location and why not have church there I mean the the possibilities of getting the gospel out are are unlimited and that's yeah. again where where all these Lee University people and young adults mm-hmm. listening, I hope are dreaming, and saying well why couldn't we try this and why couldn't we try that because the technology makes that possible and churches like life churches and others have said well you know if if the gospel's going out and and you've figured out a way to do it and whether or not you want to call yourself a life church campus or anything you know, god bless you now yeah. you know, not everybody can be that loosey-goosey about it mm-hmm. but the the heart to say yes to getting the gospel out I'm convinced, by the way, that that during the first year of the pandemic, uh, April 2020, Easter, more people heard the gospel than than in any time in human history, because every church virtually went virtual. Right. And, right. and now in every language imaginable. Remember, this was a global pandemic, right. um, some obscure dialect where there was a group of Christians uh, that that they recorded, they put it on the internet, they made it possible and friends and family could say, you know, listen to my church, come join us. Um, so very exciting times ahead for all of this experimentation with, and they don't have, you use the word microchurch, uh, video venues, I mean, there are dozens of terms for it, Right. which, which the only person that drives crazy is a researcher like me, Trying to say, how do I put my arms around this? Yeah. Uh in order to survey it and and help people know that something is bubbling up and and I think God is behind that something bubbling up.
0: So let me let me do another follow-up question because even beyond the microsites, now that we have the metaverse reality that's at play, um we're seeing churches being launched on platforms like Discord or on Oculus or in some kind of other metaverse reality, right? So um what is your estimation, again, I'm, I'm kind of just asking opinions off the cuff here, but in your estimation, the, the local church down the street here, what is their responsibility to engage with those kinds of new realities? One, two, are there healthy rhythms that we can apply right now to help us do that in a responsible way? Mm -hmm.
2: So let me give you three levels of response there are some new churches that are doing just that you know we are a fully online um you know it was it was oh what was the the great 10 years ago it was uh next world your world help me out here um n- new life well i can't remember you're not uh, <laughs> jumping in but but there will always be experiments with uh, online world right and let's try getting the gospel to gamers let's try getting the gospel to this group and they're very niche ministries doing that that's right. one category yeah. and if they can find a funding model uh awesome then there's the very i'm going to go to the other extreme the very largest churches they tend to have more margin for innovation in other words, let's say they can have one percent of their budget go to reaching gamers online. Um, well, their one percent is substantial enough that they can have some energy and muscle and uh, and focus on it much more than a church of seventy six. That's the national average, at least before the pandemic. Right. Um, their one percent you know, might not enable you to do that much. So you've got a few church plants doing it. You've got a bunch of mega churches using kind of their margin area to say, well, let's try that. Then in the middle, all the rest of the churches, which is the lion's share, there will be just a few who have just that mix of, it so happens that three people in our church work, you know, in a high-tech firm, well, they work for oculus you know and they yeah, want yeah. to bring jesus into it and and uh you know this is something we can do but but the churches in the middle generally can only do one two three things well at most mm-hmm. and that may or may not be one of them so to feel this responsibility you said the church down the road um that we have to do this and we have to have a seniors ministry and we have to have a singles ministry mm-hmm. and we have to have you can't Do everything you have to say what are the resources god has brought our way what are the doors that god is opening what is this what is the low-hanging fruit or the fruit that god wants us to pursue and that's what we'll focus on yeah
0: yeah and thank you for answering that question exactly like i hoped you would because i think um we place a lot of undue pressure on church leaders pastors elders groups whatever ministry heads, whatever, we, we place a lot of undue pressure on them to actually be innovative or creative in areas that they don't necessarily have to be. And so I think the, the the role or the task isn't to keep up necessarily with a technological advancement as much as it is to take care of the sheep that you've been given. So you answered it precisely like I hoped you would, because I hope young leaders are, are hearing and sensing, hey, I don't have to come out of the gate with the most innovative, graphically driven, artistic, you know, uh, church reality that's out there, just be faithful in, in the small things. Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of the essence. And
2: and let's speak to some of your listeners in particular, there's somebody out there who, you know, started with Dungeons and Dragons, uh, had, had a wonderful conversion uh, is into gaming as a hobby, but you know, that world, you have a passion for that Mm -hmm. God can use that background. Yes. Dream big. Try some crazy things. Figure out how to get the gospel to that community. And who knows what will come out of it? Amen. And and chances are your local church that you're part of will bless you. And and especially if it's not a money thing, it's it's do we need to pray pray for you? Do we need to to cheer for you? Do we need to, you know, uh, do you need a, to use the church building and its existing infrastructure of internet, um, you know, that stuff we can we can give you and validate. Yeah. Go for it. Build a team and see what God will do. Amen. Yeah.
1: I, I want to clear ask a clarifying question. You said the national average of churches is 76, correct? Yeah. So so where are we finding ourselves in, and I don't know that we have boxes per se, but I know everybody a lot of pastors are going, where do I fit in the narrative of everything? So what are the markers of a small church? What's the markers of the mega we defined as 2,000 people on a weekend? What, what's the middle? So if you're, if you're like a pastor sitting there listening going, I don't know where I fall in this categorically, what's the middle church right now? What's that attendance size?
2: So let me give a bit of history on that. I'm part of a group that takes the same national survey every five years. And it started in the year 2000. And in that year, they found that the average congregation in the United States on a Sunday, typically, uh, was 140 people. And then in 2005, it was a little less, 2010, a little less, 2015, a little less, 2020, just before the pandemic. It was in the 70s. Uh, it was another study that came up with 76 as the norm, but they're were, they were pretty close to each other. So if that trajectory, you know, who knows what the pandemic did to it, that's signaling a sea change because there's a certain point of economic viability. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, can we afford a pastor, or maybe we should go for a different model? Can we afford a building? Well, maybe we should go for a different model. It raises all kinds of questions um, when you're at that size. Ironically, the survey of church planning that I just completed, I asked, at what point did you become uh, financially self-sustaining? And 76 (laughs) was the minimal number that I found, which surprised me. I thought it would be a bit higher um to be able to sustain but that includes you know everything from storefront churches to long established churches that don't have mortgages to you know the church down the road that does have a mortgage uh, and so right. forth so so specifically now to your question not knowing what the realities are after the pandemic if you're in the 70s you're the typical church that's noses on a weekend you're the typical church in America. If you hit 200 people, you're in the 85th percentile wow. of churches. If you fit uh, hit and you mentioned earlier that you served a church of 800 people, you're in the 95th percentile. When you become a mega church uh at 2000, you are in the 99.5 99 and a half percentile and yet we somehow think of larger churches as the norm and smaller churches as something must be the matter and that's not reality that's not the new testament pattern where we see all the sizes right and uh that's that needs to be challenged
0: amen yeah and um yeah i think i think we've We've obviously gotten as a culture, we have some comparison factor and and success factor concerns. Um, you know, where we 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 try to determine what a successful church is or is not, right? So addressing a lot of those factors. So back to this this study just a little bit, because I am concerned. Another metric that I heard was even though we have since two thousand, we'll just use your metrics, since two thousand we have been in a in a um I don't have a steep decline, but a decline nonetheless. Like, you know, it's, we've been declining. So, um, there's that's that reality. De- that's
2: declining in average attendance. Average in-
0: attendance, correct. Correct. No, not but, in face, But let's not say yeah. that yes. that's,
2: that represents a decline in an equal decline in number of people who are engaged in church.
0: Yes, I, I agree. And that's a, that's a good demarcating factor. My, my question is how we're beginning to see, Um, sort of this ripple effect globally because the metric I heard last week was that 71% of all global mission support is coming from the United States still, even though the fastest growing churches, the fastest growing whatever models and systems are outside of the United States. So do you have any insight in terms of what that impact is on the kingdom globally?
2: Yes, there are two great books that. I'd like to commend that that give so much encouragement and hope for how people around the world are embracing the challenge of 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 the challenge of sending missionaries beyond their borders and uh, and embracing it financially as well, uh, whether it's Korea, which is way disproportionate in the number of missionaries and monies uh, sent overseas to Brazil. The, yeah. the evangelicals, there are kicking up. One book is by Patrick Johnston, Operation World. Another book that just came out is Global Christianity by Gina Zurlo, Z-U-R-L-O. And uh, those will help us pray and pray partner with, uh, with churches around the world to help even out the inequity, but, but also to help challenge and encourage them in ways that they can grow in their burden for, if you will, like the fastest growing denomination in Africa, Redeemed Christian Church of God, uh, is sending missionaries to the United States. And and rightly so. Mm-hmm. And may they, uh, starting with Nigerians, that uh, is their home country uh, compatriots and spreading far beyond that, um, may they and many others like them be a force. And may there be a, a true round table. In fact, I was just talking with a pastor in Kenya and he's, he's sending out for his church planning teams international groups because he says the best way to reach these urban cities, which are you know densely, highly um, uh, diverse in their racial makeup, is to send a racially diverse team.
0: Mm-hmm. you know,
2: a church planter from yeah. Australia, one from Africa, and one from Asia together, modeling the kingdom of God, but each having inroads with people from their own cultures. That's interesting,
1: yeah. yeah. uh, To kind of piggyback off that, we've, in the last 20 years, really seen church planting a growing trend, being both trending and a little bit trendy in the American church. Um, Organizations like Acts 29 and ARC and other organizations, I'm part of the Church Multiplication Network with the Assemblies of God, are, are helping e- equip that and kind of fuel that
2: will we amen yes
1: (laughs) the question becomes uh well i feel your answer is already coming are we going to see that trend continue to go are we going to keep planting churches in america do you think that's going to be the energy that keeps happening or is there going to be kind of a cooling off of
2: that i think two things are happening one is that momentum is continuing to grow denominations are slow to transform uh, Assembly of God was an early pioneer in saying, and uh, in, in several specific individuals in saying, um, l- look, there are, for the Assemblies of God in particular, uh, so many immigrants coming from South America, we need to figure out how to help them start churches uh, yeah. that can reach other immigrants and ultimately mainstream into American society, um, they early on caught the vision for um, church planting. Many other denominations that historically are highly evangelistic, like the Southern Baptist, my heritage, um, hadn't really processed structurally, what does that mean? And, and I'll, let me give you some statistics. If a denomination wants to decline, and I use that as kind of a tease, it will only plant two percent of its total churches. So, in other words, if it has a hundred churches in the denomination and it only plants two new ones this year, it will decline. If it plants three new churches out of a hundred, three percent, it will hold even. It has to plant four or more 4% um new churches in order to grow so even the southern baptist as they're doing their numbers and saying hmm we're still i think the and, and the last couple of years have been their banner years in planting churches and i cheer it and in my new faces of church planting survey they they were the biggest group to participate yay southern baptist yeah. but even so <laughs> southern baptists are not Four five percent church plan, they're they're working between two and three uh percent, and and that's gonna be a challenge for any denomination or movement uh to sustain itself and grow. And again, we're not about growing numbers, we're about reaching people for Jesus right. Christ and the population yeah. is growing. And in order to keep helping people find that eternally difference making decision of following jesus um we have to keep planting more churches
1: yeah what's the what's the quote from uh kinnaman dave Kinneman? do you remember somebody shared it with us that the the population outside of a either he didn't use a revival but a move of god yeah. was, with high discipleship making the american church will be in constant decline compared to the population growth
2: Yeah. And and that's a that's a very real challenge. Now, on the on the one side, the mainline churches have amazingly declined over the last 50 years and Mm -hmm. evangelical churches have held their own in a lot of ways. Yeah. So but don't anybody pat yourself on the back too quickly yeah. <laughs> we all think about our neighbors friends and relatives who don't yet know jesus so, yeah. so uh, we have far more ground to cover
0: so just switching gears just a little bit here i mean the premise of the whole show pretty much is how do we get young adults to engage in local church context right that's it's sort of a, a driving question and we've had all kinds of conversations about it but um from your perspective with the research that you've done and the conversations that you've had. um, And we've said on the show a bunch of times that there's no greater time in human history for young adults to be leading in a local church than right now. Right. So, so how are you helping other church leaders, other pastors, denominations, whatever, actually open the door for young adults to begin leading right now, instead of waiting their turn 15, 20 years down the road.
2: Let me answer that question. Not, about the leaders but let me answer it about the people listening and and that is i want to invite you to knock on the door Mm. with a ministry idea yeah and ask permission to lead if god has given you any kind of dream or passion build a team around it go to your pastor and say may we have permission to start a ministry that reaches so-and-so a particular age group type of person or whatever you lead and and should god bless you with a response your church leaders will then turn and say hallelujah you know can how do we pray for you? You know, and, and at some point they'll say, let's find some money for you, mm-hmm. but don't start there. Don't right. start with the money. Um, start with the ministry and let the... that's good. Money follows vision. Yes. Money follows spiritual fruitfulness. The money will come start doing ministry, do it through and with the blessing of the pastor of a local church or the leadership team there. And, and see what God will do. Meanwhile, pastors, one of the most fruitful things I've seen them do in recent years, and it's, it's something that's starting to bubble up, but doesn't yet have strong form, is this idea of ministry residencies. Now, a lot of people do internships, and that's, you know, a summer thing, maybe between high school and college or whatever, and that's wonderful. Any kind of internship is great but this is an intentional ministry idea uh residency is where it's it's someone is taken on board with a dream. I hope a year from now to go blank go to seminary to to plant, go go overseas as a tent maker who knows what it is but you have a calling and you're saying I want to spend the year at this church will you help train me? And, and hold me accountable and help me and, and as iron sharpens iron, um, help me grow and mature and learn from you. Um, and and then, as the year is up, I'll be so much better. So you know, Jeff, your church launched one year ago this week of this recording. It is not too young to start thinking about interns and potential residents yeah. for how can you raise up people? who are to come alongside you that you can then bless and send out to uh yeah. to other harvest fields.
1: That's that's really the heart of what we want to do, Warren. And so I wanna wanna put a a comparison contrast to this. We had uh Pastor Chris Hodges on, I don't know, last spring. No, yeah, last spring, I think. And they have Highlands College, which is like a college expression with sort of a residency. So this one year residency, how is that maybe different and similar to what they're doing at like a Highlands College or different college expressions that are showing up on on some of these mega church uh, campuses? campuses? Yeah.
2: Okay. So Church of the Highlands, great example that the executive pastor rallied, and I we can talk about how he found him, but but there were half a dozen to a dozen, uh, young adults who who came. Many of them lived in his basement. Bless his wife. I'm <laughs> um, speaking of Lane um, and and took them on as interns. And because of Chris Hodge's vision and permission giving mm-hmm. and because God uniquely blessed that church with all kinds of growth, more and more people came and said, well, I want to do an internship here. And Chris welcomed that and beckoned it and invited it. Um, and soon enough, it was such a sizable group that it became under Billy Hornsby and others a college right um and many schools have come that way i'm christian missionary alliance background and that's what became nyack college it's let's train up missionaries to send to the uttermost parts of the earth and well there's so many of them we might as well make a college out of it which became nyack college um but while that's a wonderful thing and many colleges can trace their roots to it not everybody's going to be able to do it on that scale. Right, so right. I love the Dave Ferguson challenge. What if every church in America took on one ministry resident and if you're multi-site, per campus, per year? Yeah. That would change the face of the North American church.
0: For an entire but generation. All that to
2: say <laughs> yeah. the the ministry college represented by Church of the Highlands is is just a a next step for residency programs mm-hmm. that are really really big. And let me just comment because I did through uh, I I did an earlier research project on internships and residencies, and the ones that are most the ones that are least effective are predominantly sit and soak. You know, come and take my classroom. I'm going to teach you all these things. You know, and then on the weekend you're going to minister. The ones that are most fruitful are, hey, we're opening up a new campus. Why don't you do it with me from ground one? We start on our knees. That's part of how every campus starts. You know, I want you to be part of of building the prayer undergirding. The next step is we go look for locations. Come with me. Get in the car. Let's take the team in the car. Let's go look for location. Um, Doing the ministry is the best way to learn, at least for the majority of your context. Then you come back in the classroom and you have very real questions. Well, how come people don't this or what, how would I do that? Or what are the ideas for this? Uh, Now you're asking in the trenches questions.
0: So, so what has been uh, Dave Ferguson's model, which uh, in some ways just seems almost biblically logical, right? (laughs) It seems, it seems like that's something we might ought to be doing anyway, but But what have you found maybe are some of those resistance factors for for churches doing it, one? um, And two, what are some ways that they can overcome that?
2: That's a really good question. Uh, An insider story. Dave Ferguson and I I co-authored a book called Hero Maker, which is five. The subtitle is Five Leadership Practices for Leaders to Multiply leaders yeah Mm -hmm. and where that book really started is i wanted to highlight his internship program his residency program and publishers all said "Mm, we can't sell enough books for that Um, but if you were to talk about the larger you know ministry residency is just one of many steps and phases and stages of the bigger idea of leadership development if you want to talk about that then we're interested in a book. So in essence, one of the five steps is do, do a residency or five practices, but but we have other practices too that, that anybody can do. So um, the hesitation for the ministry residency piece in particular is inevitably money. Mm. It's like, we don't know how to fund that or it's, we don't know where to get that kind of person and my advice to every church is start one step at a time can you do a summer internship do you have someone that you can say hey uh, are you game to work at starbucks to pay the pay your most expenses one of the families in our church will host you would you be comfortable with that and then you devote every other waking hour to being mentored in a particular ministry area in the church, can you do that? Uh, does it does it produce fruitfulness? Uh, can you refine it? Um, yeah. Can you can you grow from there? Uh, can you keep dreaming of how could we be a reproducing, multiplying church, and that includes reproducing and multiplying leaders? That's really good. Yeah, and and incidentally, yeah. this new faces of church planting. Research. We ask a whole lot of of leadership development, discipleship, um, uh, multiplication, replication questions, and uh, the reports are now starting to roll out. They're all available free at ECFA. Again, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. ECFA.org/surveys, plural, and uh, and you can. You can learn what we're learning. And one of the things we're learning from it, if I could speak to your audience in particular, is the average age of a church planner is going up. Mm, In the survey, the average age of somebody who planted in 2022 is age 42. And yet, because I had several thousand people take the survey, uh, I was able to parse it out. Okay, what about the average age of people who start when they planted? in 2021 and when they planted in 2020. And I went back 15 years and there's a six year drop. So in other words, back 15 years ago, the average launch age for the pastor at the time was 36, which is what I, I thought. So listeners, you need to be that next generation yeah. that lowers the age curve. And by the way, we asked the pastor's age, of course, to, in order to answer that question. And they, the youngest was 22. 22 years old, planting a church. Awesome, crazy, but wonderful. And the oldest was over age 70. So whatever yeah. age you are, if God is calling you to do something wild and crazy to reach people for Christ, you have good company. Yeah. And one of the things I'm going to do with the data is I'm going to take all the 20-somethings who planted churches, and I'm going to see how are they different from everybody else. I, and I, that I, will become I, one of the charts in line. I was. When What's I it? was at
1: a we we went to um again like church multiplication they have a launch which is like a two day kind of thing, and I I'll acknowledge my age I'm forty five I was forty four when I walked into that meeting, um I thought I would be one of the oldest there and I was really in the middle like yeah. so we had these tables and there was a young man who's like I think twenty four another couple that was the same age, but around the room was this diversity of ages of church planners. Like I thought, I was going to be the old man in the room, coming my 40s to plant churches because it's hip, it's trendy, it's all those things. But there seems to be like just this—I don't know—call the Lord as one, but just something else happening. Why? Why is church planning and why people even later in life and maybe second careers or second callings or you know later in their ministry career starting churches?
2: Well, or restarting churches right point that's another piece right of people going in and and the church isn't ready to merge yet or maybe that's not the option they think god wants them to do but they bring in a new leader who says okay you know if we were to take these people not too many of us and this facility which does need some work um and launch a church today to reach the next generation not your friends because we're all too old here uh, that was bad statement (laughs) (laughs) needing to reach multiple generations not just our generation here um how would we do it yeah and uh and that's where this restarter momentum which is Mm -hmm. is happening but the average restarter in our survey was 44 so again that's often uh second career or um you know any number of factors i don't know why the age why there haven't been more 20 somethings and early 30 somethings to offset the curve but i'd love your listeners to even if we don't understand why to be the ones to help offset the curve
1: do you think it's a permission thing or do you think that we need to give them permission? Like they're starting a lot of things. They're starting ministries. Yeah, well, starting today's online.
2: millennial and Gen X uh, wants to create everything and doesn't want to ask permission, just doesn't. Right. They just right. do um, it. So so I'm not to work within an existing structure. Maybe you need to ask permission, but so many just create it on their own. Yeah. And then and this,
1: I think that's what we found. We talked to Gen Z leaders and sort of these young adults who are doing incredible things. Um, they are if if in anything they're in partnership with the local church, but very few of them are starting local churches, they're starting ministry organizations and nonprofits yeah. and missional things, but it seems to be like they I don't know if they're afraid of the the title church or if they don't want to be in the structure of it. They want to start something, but so often it's not a church in the way we think about it.
0: Yeah.
2: And and I applaud that creativity. Uh, and that entrepreneurial spirit Mm -hmm. uh i've i've lived long enough to know that as an organization kind of puts down roots and well we do need a board and well we do need this and we do need that 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 they tend to either become an established i'm going to use the word that that many don't like institution uh or they affiliate with someone else to say well why don't we just become your um uh, you know, our soup kitchen become a ministry of this church, but yeah. right, Since so many of the volunteers come from the church, you know, let's, rather than us making our own separate nonprofit, can we just become a ministry of yours uh, or, or a subsidiary? And uh, that can work out very well too.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so I feel like I'm sitting around a campfire you know, up in upstate New York with Warren and we're just having like these incredible conversations about life and ministry that I don't want to end.
1: We're wrapping these questions as our listeners want to know, but really that you and I just want to know really
0: they're just about us, but, but we are
2: listeners do want to know, know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) but, but we are, we are out of time and we do want to ask you one final question, which is a question that we ask everyone that we have as a guest on the show. And here's the question. What is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom?
2: I appreciate that question and I enjoyed praying and thinking over it. And my answer is I went to a local church and the pastor bent over backwards to make room for all us college students and entrusted us with responsibilities that I don't know whether the lay leaders were retired and glad to see new energetic people. <laughs> you know, maybe there was a lot going on, uh, but let me just shout out his name, David Jankowski. You shaped the trajectory and your wife, Ruthie Jankowski of my life and my wife's life for many decades. I'm that old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, so thankful for his permission giving he let us fail he guided us he mentored us and uh i just i couldn't wait to get to church every week Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, and it was just such an exciting part of our lives uh and you know you can't get that in a classroom yeah and so um, I've, I got a friend who just went to college and I'm calling him this weekend and saying, have you visited a local church yet, yeah. you know, to find some way to plug in?
0: Amen. So important. Amen. It's, it is. That is and not story.
2: just attend, but get involved. There yeah. are things you can do. You can lead. You can create. You can make a difference.
1: Yeah. Dr. Billy Wilson, who is now OR, ORU and Empowered 21, pastored a local church here in Cleveland. And yeah. that was, I'd been there maybe two weeks and that was his thing. How do we get you plugged in? How do we get you serving? And it it, it incredibly changed the tra- trajectory of my life. It's yeah. why I planted a church is because Billy Wilson looked at me and said, hey, we believe in you. Let's find space for you to serve as a 20 something. And it it impacted everything. Yeah. And they had a similar yeah. experience. Absolutely. So, well, Dr. Absolutely. Bird, this has been an absolute joy. And like I feel like I'm gonna have to detox and unpack all the information <laughs> and sort it out and put it in little boxes in my brain and, and make use of it. I know our listeners are gonna appreciate it. And we can't say thank you enough for yeah. being on the show and your service to the kingdom. Um, you've made such a huge impact. And we just thank you for your time.
2: It's been a joy, and I through ECFA, ECFA.org, uh we have gobs of free resources. We want to help you do mission well, integrity well, build trust so that the vision God has given you can flourish.
0: Amen. Thank you, Warren. We really appreciate you being on.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. If something from this episode helped you lead better, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may share it to our channels. We appreciate you taking time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.